Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Watching Wild Style this morning again. Uh-huh. I saw it again. Again, this yeah. is what your second time. Now? This is my third time. Third time. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite character is Lee Quinones. Oh, of course, he's my favorite one. He's like, listen, I don't know, man. I'm I'm just trying to paint on the on the, on the trains. You know, I'm trying to find the action. You know, to find the, <laughs> the. You know, I'm just trying to do my art, man. You know, my mom's Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican. We gotta get these cops to lay off us, man. I don't know. It's just art. And that is the voice of 1981. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. Y yo soy Carolina Hidalgo. <laughs> Distancing myself. <laughs> Welcome to part two of the Beastie Boys. Well, okay. okay yes, this yes. is part two of the Beastie Boys, right? But you know how we like to side quest? Uh-huh. Season 1.1 actually being a side quest? Mm. Well, within season 1.1 of the side quest, there is a special extra side quest. Lucky you! <laughs> got a special extra side quest. And this one is about the beginnings of hip-hop, Well, where hip-hop and punk meet. Exactly. Like it is. Think of it as a story within a story. If you've read Sandman, think... Think of uh, that one issue where, you know, all the dead people are telling the stories at the necropolis and one person tells a story and then the person in the story tells the story. It's kind of like that. That makes total sense. <laughs> and that's what we're going to go for. OK, we're yeah. going to just use that template yeah. and we're going to move it to this. Yeah. And so we're going to be upfront. Like there's not going to be a lot of Beastie Boys in this episode. Barely. <laughs> they're going to show Barely. up. They're going to show up at the end. But we do believe that this story is essential to the Beastie Boys story. You know, in order to answer the question of how did the Beastie Boys come about, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered beforehand. Right. We're going to call this the Old Testament. (laughs) Yeah, New Testament makes fuck all sense without the Old Testament. Exactly. Thank you. That's my point. That's the exact same thing here. And that's the thing. Because we did go pretty deep into the history of hip hop, you know, at least the early history of hip hop between like 1973 in 1982, we had to use a bunch of new sources, but great fucking sources. Mm-hmm. Can't Stop, Won't Stop by Jeff Chang. I can't say enough how great that book is. It is a textbook. It's very much a textbook. It I is mean, a it's, textbook, it's it is taught in good. college courses, but it's fucking great. 
yes, it is the authority. And this is what we use. This is our main source, but also other sources like Hip Hop Family Tree Volume 1 by Ed Pisker. Oh, Hip Hop Family Tree is the fucking best. Read all four of them. I can't wait for more. It's so good. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, the new Netflix documentary that uh, that just came out. I mean, it didn't just come out. It came out on Netflix. Uh, Hip Hop Evolution, the episode Part two, that was really, really good. Yeah. And so that was very, very helpful and very well worth the watch. And, uh, you know, I checked out a lot of interviews online. That was pretty much the biggest way to do it, just to hear from the horse's mouth. So yeah. like downtown punk rock meets uptown hip hop dot blogspot dot com. It's this blog that I just found that had all this information on it. I thought it was really, really interesting. So like, check that out. Yeah. It's and, great. And that was written like, it wasn't it written like 2011 or something two, like that. I mean, the blog spot years at the very least. They just left it there for me to unearth <laughs> and be like, thank you. Thank you. Because as many of you might know, this is not necessarily our everyday jam. Yeah. So I have no authority to speak on hip Pop, or even punk for that matter, or even any anything at all other than like seven seasons of the Golden Girls. So and all the seasons of Frasier, you're pretty fluent in those. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's yeah, hip hop. We do. I mean, we greatly enjoy hip hop. We love hip hop more. I mean, our expertise is definitely more punk. Uh, but you know, we're absolutely going to do our best on this. Like, so we're going to be approaching this with all due respect, naturally. Now, as we said in the first episode, the developments of hip-hop and punk don't strictly mirror each other. But despite the fact that one developed completely independently of the other, they still have a lot in common. Besides the general no-future feelings that both cultures were dealing with, both punk and hip-hop in the beginning were DIY enterprises through and through. And the marrying of these two cultures, which began to happen in 1982, resulted in the Beastie Boys. Beastie Boy babies. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it is really important to acknowledge, I know you just did, but it's super important to acknowledge that we know that these are completely two different worlds. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And so we're not saying that this is like, oh, it, it's completely relatable, but we're trying to relate yes. if any way and, and try to explain how how this came to be and the consequence of that, which is great. It's yeah. great music. Yeah. They don't necessarily marry each other. But, you know, as I said, they rhyme. Excuse the pun once more. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as far as where hip hop began, the different claims of when and where and how are pretty similar to the kinds of arguments people make about the development of punk rock. For example, you can certainly say that punk rock started with proto-punk bands like the Sonics, playing songs like Psycho and Strychnine in Tacoma back in 1965. You could also say the Monks, you know, were right. a proto-punk band or the played Collins in Germany. Kids, yeah. right? With Whistlebait. That that song was recorded in 1958, and some people call that the first punk rock song. <laughs> I mean, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. However, the culture didn't start with the Sonics or the Monks or the Collins kids. And it's the culture of hip hop that we're interested in today. As far as where that culture mostly developed goes, though, the location was the Bronx. And we really can't overstate just how bad a shape the Bronx was in during the late 70s and the early 80s, particularly in the South Bronx. The newly built South Bronx Expressway had cut a swath of destruction directly through the neighborhood, and arson perpetrated by both landlords and criminals had rendered entire blocks of this formerly vibrant neighborhood to rubble. Like, it looked like a war zone. 
Yeah, but, kind of like Manchester, yeah. 1977. <laughs> yeah, and that's that is actually kind of the funny thing about uh, hip hop and punk is that really the scene that the hip hop scene of the mid 70s to the late 70s. The scene, the punk scene that it shares the most with is the UK punk scene, you know, the, that things were so awful over there and so dilapidated and so, and falling apart all the time and so fucking miserable, you know, but that's the thing. As we know from our punk series, it isn't necessarily just rebellion that creates culture shifting moments in music. Rather, it's more desperation. And there were few places in America during this time period more desperate than the Bronx, that's why when people said, you know, oh, when Donald Trump is elected, oh, punk rock's going to be good again. No, of course not, because that's just rebellion. Rebellion by itself is nothing. You need desperation to truly shift the culture. See, back when hip hop first began to develop in the early to mid 70s in the Bronx, the culture was dominated by the DJs and MCs with the biggest sound systems. Artists like DJ Cool Herc, who brought the sound system culture of Jamaica to the public parks and parties of the Bronx. The legendary DJ Cool Herc. The father. Yes, the godfather. The, the, I mean, well, actually, people's choice. People's choice, yeah. Yes, in a lot of ways. Like, he's legendary because of the power of his sound system that he used to DJ with, for, you know, at clubs and parties, and that, of course. And that and his amazing record collection. He had an amazing one that made him one of the top DJs in the Bronx in the 70s. And it was always, like, very secretive. You know, you never ask him, like, hey, what record was that? What was, that was really good. He's like, uh-uh, I'm not telling you. Why? Because you're just going to go buy that record and go <laughs> do that. You know, it, it, there was a little bit of competition involved. Was he the one that used to soak his records in water so he could peel the labels off? Where did he learn that from? Jamaica. <laughs> So, yes, Herc was exposed to all kinds of music when he was living in Jamaica as a kid with his family because of his dad, Keith Campbell. You see, his dad, he worked at the uh, like in Kingston at the, the wharf, like the docks over there. And so when the ships would be coming in, he'd be collecting a lot of records from America and other places. So they had a really sweet collection of like jazz music, soul, country. Mm -hmm. Jim Reeves was their jam. <laughs> That's great. And that's yeah. fu that's funny. That's really interesting because it's the, the same way that a lot of rockabilly came into England. You know, like a lot of the sailors brought like Buddy Holly and, and blues came into England, too. You know, they brought that shit into Liverpool, which is how the Beatles heard it. Exactly. That, yeah. And that's why it was so great. Like the, the music is like eclectic. Yeah. And that's the point of hip hop. That, so I've been told. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the authority, but this is what I've been told by the crates. As long as it's funky. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, DJ Cool Herc had this sweet sound system that his dad got when they immigrated to the Bronx from Jamaica when Herc was about 12 years old uh, because his dad, uh, Keith, was he, he started working doing sound for an R&B band. And he, so he had this sweet, sweet sound system with these tall columns, like these uh, these like short columns. And so Herc would like always try to mess with them and everything to give it the most power. And of course, you know, a dad would be like, don't touch that. <laughs> but Herc figured out how to make it really powerful. So his dad's like, oh, OK, then let's go into business together. <laughs> that was pretty good. So now this is the part where many people credit DJ Cool Herc as one of the pioneers at the beginning of the hip hop culture. And it all started with a party that his younger sister and her friends wanted to throw in the rec room of their apartment building. It starts with a party. Yeah, always. Yes. So Cindy Campbell, you know, Herc's younger teenage sister, she's like thinking like, OK, it's summer of 1973. School's going to start. We should have a party and maybe make some money off of it, you know, for like books and new clothes and stuff like that for the school year. Uh, we can charge cover at the door, you know, like 
25 cents for women and then 50 cents for guys and and we'll sell drinks and we'll have a good time end of summer party yeah 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 that was a good meeting that day <laughs> so cindy so she she rented the recreation room in their building in the, in the west bronx 1520 sedgwick avenue famous address of course and then they bought cases and cases of old english malt and colt 45 beers <laughs> this is the beginning man <laughs> this is the beginning all right and so next they figured okay the promotion we got to promote this uh no, no flyers no it's too expensive so what uh, she had cindy had from her school she had all these index cards so she just like let me just write down the address the place time all right here hand them out perfect now we got people now as far as music goes she's like i'll just get my brother clive aka DJ Cool Herc, since he was already DJing at this point, and and he'll just DJ our little fun party with all these young little kids. August 11th, 1973. And that party was what a lot of people call the birth of the hip hop culture because it was a huge hit and it led to more parties in that rec room. And then in neighborhood parks, Cedar Park, block parties. And Herc asked his friend Coca Rock to get on the microphone and MC while people danced all night. And oh, there you go. Throw your hands up in the air, man. <laughs> yeah. And we're off and running. And we're off and running. And it's a completely and totally DIY enterprise. You Absolutely. Know? This is by the kids. Yeah. I mean, their parents helped a little bit. I mean, how else are you going to get that Colt 45? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And once the parties started to proliferate through the neighborhood, you know, they're doing them in uh, public parks and they're opening up fucking light posts. Like they're opening up street lights so they can hook their sound system up into the electricity of the city to power their sound systems to throw parties. Yes. The, the street lights will be dimming <laughs> while everyone is rocking out. So they're like, all right, well, there's a shed here and I see that. Yes, we can hook it up here. All right, let's. OK, we're going to throw a rock through the window yeah. first and then we're going to get some kids to crawl through it and just plug it in plug it in <laughs> and they're doing this because uh, i mean that was another situation in the bronx it was overrun by gangs in the 60s and at that point there was a you know new york city a lot of uh, budget cuts mm -hmm. you know new york was going broke in the 70s yeah so a lot of the the police force they were cut so they were just like you know just let them have those parties we'll just hang back and just tell them that you know, be quiet eventually. It, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a perfect situation, but it, it did arise out of some sort of necessity where uh, they were able to do something like that. Yeah. And, and this is DJing beyond just uh, playing records. You know, like this is the beginning of like using other people's music, using records as instruments. You know, it, it's bringing out the beats. You know, it's it's getting the beat to Apache, the doom, doom. You know, it's getting that beat and just looping it over and over again because those were the parts of the songs that people go fucking nuts for. Like they'd start dancing. They go, yeah, fucking been drumming. <laughs> so like Cole Herc is like noticing that people are like going crazy with those parts. So he's just getting two copies of Apache and he's just looping it over and over again. And then he's figuring out like, okay, I can mix two songs together. I can put like Bongo Rock by the incredible Bongo Band. I can put that together with uh, The Mexican by Babe Ruth, which is just like this fucking cool rock song you know it doesn't matter as long as it's funky just put it together and people are going fucking nuts for it and so other people started getting inspired by cool herc and another dj began perfecting the techniques that cool herc invented the breaks the merry-go-round and so on and so forth they are exactly what they sound like and this guy that was inspired by cool herc he made a name for himself as grandmaster flash and of course, he would later be the DJ for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and concerning what Grandmaster was eventually capable of, he's heard here in a record that captured Flash doing a live early DJ mix using nothing more than his record collection and three 
turntables. This is all done on the fly by hand. You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Y'all like that bass line because you're going to hear it a lot. Luckily, I do. <laughs> oh, you're not talking to me. <laughs> no, it's the good. It's the bass line to good times. You yeah. Know? Like, of course, it was famously used in Rapper's Delight later on. But the reason why it was used in Rapper's Delight is because it was already a uh, it just people just found that for some reason, the good times bass line was perfect to rap over like there was just something and so like when people would go in to record like a rap song once they started putting rap on wax uh they would say like hey give me something like that good times baseline so you're gonna hear like like there's so many different variations of doom 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 boom 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 like there's just so many variations on that in the early uh stages of hip-hop and we're gonna hear that quite a bit yes <laughs> but that's why grandmaster flash used it uh, niles rogers who co-wrote you know that baseline and everything when he first heard rappers delight he first thought like should i sue <laughs> hmm. and by the end of the song he's like nah <laughs> nah it's, it's fucking perfect. great <laughs> yes so that was grandmaster flash taking songs you know like queen and uh you know good times of course and all that and putting it together Three turntables. Yeah. Because he he was just a master at his technique. Yeah. And when I said it was done live, I meant that it was done in real time. Yes. Like there was no, I think he did it in three takes or something like he that. He got it on the third take. Yeah. Can you believe that? Like he's just doing this like, yeah, yeah let, let me just get familiar with this. Let me just, and then bam, he just does it all perfectly. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Grandmaster Flash, he took what he learned from DJs like DJ Cool Herc and Pete DJ Jones. And as you said, you know, he perfected it, you know, like learning how to mark stuff on the record to remember the place to where to go back to you know all that business using a crayon <laughs> that is that is the the lore yeah. to it, of course um, but going back to uh when he started djing parties the first time he figured out how to make the perfect mix and drop the needle exactly where it needed to be seamlessly you see because when dj cool herc did that what we were talking about like switching from one song to another he was just dropping the needle around where he could find the beat but he wasn't doing it perfectly because Grandmaster Flash was the next guy to kind of find that. He had mm -hmm. headphones. He found a cue switch to do that, yeah. to do it perfectly, almost seamlessly, actually seamlessly. Yes. And <laughs> so the first time he tried this, Grandmaster Flash tried this at a party and no one reacted. 
Everyone's like, that's nice. <laughs> and they just stood there. They're just staring at him like it's some sort of sermon he was giving or something. And and he said he cried for a week. He's oh. like, I don't understand. I did this perfect. You know, I, I, I'm watching the, the masters. I'm, I'm seeing what they're doing. I, I'm doing this. I, I'm finding the technical side to this. I, I'm building these things with my own bare hands because Grandmaster Flash was a tech wizard. Well, like, he was an artist. He was a very sensitive artist. Yes. Like, he very, very much was. And just studying all day long as a kid, just learning how everything worked and why everything worked. Not just playing with it, just like breaking it apart and putting it back together again. So when he worked out that technique for himself and he realized like, oh, okay, this is not enough. Like I, I need something extra, a little more flash, let's say <laughs> a little more style. I need an MC or maybe five. Mm-hmm. How about I get five MCs on the mic? <laughs> you know, like someone to go, everyone say, ho, that kind of stuff. If you love your mama, say ho. <laughs> <laughs> and so like that was with Cowboy, got Cowboy, then Melly Mel and, and his brother Kid Creole. And then later added Mr. Ness, you know, AKA Scorpio. And then Raheem came at the end. So then they became the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious five yeah it's beautiful and uh so like the way i put it together to try to figure it out is that he was christy from the babysitter's club (laughs) and he needed a stacy and definitely a claudia you know Uh, (laughs) i feel like cowboy was definitely marianne but he could also be a claudia i don't know we'll talk about we'll talk about it on the discord (laughs) yeah i mean this is uh the time that like mcs like as far as like how mcs started you know which eventually of course turned into rappers it's very simple. You know, you get a guy on the mic to get the crowd going and it starts out as like shout outs. You know, it just starts out as like people saying each other, hey, you know, my buddy's here. And like and people comes like, hey, man, could you like say my name? Because like there's this girl here. And like, if you said my name, then, you know, she'd think I was cool. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of toasting. Yeah, toasting. Yes. Yeah, a lot of that started in Jamaica. Uh, a little bit of that, that toasting, like emceeing. Because uh, first of all, most of all, uh, the DJ was the center of uh, well, not necessarily the center. The audience was the center of the show. Yeah. But the DJ was the center of the entertainment. Yeah. And the MC was the guy's like, come on, just keep it going. Just keep the, a hype man. Yeah. If, if you want to call him that. Yeah. He was the hype man for the DJs. Like, you know, flash is fast. Flash is fast. Mm-hmm. Like they're trying to keep everything going, everything moving along. And that's what Grandmaster Flash needed, especially if he's working three turntables at once. Yeah. And then it became... The MC was the focus and the DJ was there for the MC. But at this point in time, when we're talking about it, the DJ is still the main show. And besides Grandmaster Flash and Cool Herc, there was a third DJ who was essential to both the story of hip hop and the story of the Beastie Boys. His name was Africa Bombada. Started rocking and shocking and fucking it up. Oh, come on, everybody, fuck it up. Started rocking and shocking and fucking it up. Oh, come on, everybody, let's fuck it up. Started rocking and shocking and fucking it up. Oh, come on, everybody, fuck it up. Started rocking and shocking and fucking it up. Oh, come on, everybody, fuck it up. Hey, people out there, listen up. The Soul Sonic Force MCs are going to do that stuff. Count down. This is the time to be getting funky. This is the time to be getting funky. Party people, let's get it. To the people out there who slept on us now. We have the store for your boys and girls want to jump the door. So when the BMC stand side by side, oh, all three faces you will recognize. Mr. Big Pop and MC Glow, we gonna rock the proof. We got a lot of soul when you all get set. Get ready, let's go. The three MCs about to rock this show, of course. 
That's Soul Sonic Force as the MCs. That's right. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. But let's talk about Africa Bombada. Okay, this we is, have to. Yeah. Okay. So um, he is integral to the story, of course. Uh, but as of 2016, some things came to light. There have been allegations of sex abuse of young boys and teenagers. Very damning and very credible. Very uh, credible, and uh, a lot of them. Yes, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. Dating of them. back to the 70s. And they're fucking heartbreaking. And this is yes, this is awful. First of all, and most of all, to the victims of his abuse, uh, but also like to the community. Yeah. Because he was a leader in that community for a very long time, and a huge part of this hip hop history. It just it really sucks, and, and we're not going to get into it. No, uh, no. Other than you can look it up if you if you jail. like. Yeah, <laughs> you fucking belongs in jail. Yes, um, yes. If we want to talk about New York City uh, sex abuse and uh, statutory limits, then we can talk about. That. That, but we're not going to talk about that. Yes. Uh, so be it as it may, his music and his influence did stretch all over the world to musicians and bands just like the Beastie Boys. So we're going to get into the history and the influence and save that conversation for another time. You yeah. know, at home with your families and your friends and maybe you should call your local representatives to change those said laws of prosecute these monsters. I agree. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Africa Bambata, he's, his biggest influence as far as music goes is his programming. And also, I will talk about later, the 808 machine. I think yeah. we'll talk about it in the next episode. So Bambata's, like his record collection, you know, the records that he'd play at the clubs and parties, like they were very, very eclectic. They they ranged from everywhere, from Kraftwerk to the Rolling Stones to the, you know, Tony Basil's, hey, Mickey, you're so fun, you're so fun, you're home, <laughs> you know, everything. Yeah, man, yeah. you go to see Africa Bambata, you're going to hear... You're going to hear that for like 10 minutes. Exactly. He was called the master of records for a reason. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just playing everything and anything, rock, salsa, calypso, uh, later famous for his electro funk style and everything in the 80s. Bam's other influence is also as being the founder of the Universal Zulu Nation, which is a movement based on a more positive aspect of black culture, uh, although it includes all cultures mm -hmm. uh, for everybody. But its strongest message being peace, love, unity and happiness having fun. Yep. And also 
Bam Bad is also very well known for taking his music downtown to the art and punk clubs in Manhattan who are mostly made up of white audiences who had never been exposed to what was going on in the Bronx at that time. Yeah. So this is why this is so important. Extremely important. You know, and Bambada was also like he was a former gang member and he was Black one of Spades. Black Spades. And, you know, he was one of the guys that started funneling uh, people from the gangs over into music to something a lot more positive. Right. Or, or not just, uh, you know, MC, not just DJing, but also B-boying, uh, breakdancing, all that kind of stuff, artwork, graffiti, and and then the the knowledge, the knowledge, um, <laughs> j- just like an, having like a tr- trying to stay away from the streets, stay away from gang wars and everything you're talking about and violence, and to uh, try to uh, be a more positive person. Absolutely. But the thing about all three of those artists was that their performances were entirely dependent on them having their own sound system for the live show, which was well out of the financial reach of most of the people in the South Bronx. That's the thing. In order to do what Grandmaster Flash is doing, you need to own a mixer in order to do that. You need to be able to practice on a mixer. But all that changed during the infamous New York City blackout of 1977 caused by a cascade of fuck-ups that began with a lightning storm upstate the 77 blackout plunged most of new york city into darkness on a hot july night almost immediately large swaths of people all over the five boroughs swarmed the stores of new york city and looted with many aspiring djs and mcs in the south bronx targeting electronic stores in particular And this was how many of the legends in the first wave of hip-hop got their first mixers and speakers and turntables, which were, of course, essential to the development of hip-hop culture. Now, I'm not going to say it was right that all these stores were looted, but what I think this does show is that if people are given access to the resources they need to express themselves creatively, then there's no fucking limit to what they can achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it all started with a thunderbolt. <laughs> I mean, that's a biblical. literal thunderbolt. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, the parks of the South Bronx were full of crews who could compete on the level of Grandmaster Flash, Cool Herc, and Africa Bombada. And what was even better was that the music they were making was more raw and more real. In other words, more punk. We rock and don't stop. When it's a super cat, the fabulous Man, I'm not the baddest, not the baddest 
Treacherous Three. Treacherous Three. <laughs> Spoonie G and the Treacherous Three. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't just the quality of the music that brought hip hop downtown. There needed to be a bridge, someone who was a part of both scenes who recognized that the people downtown could connect with what was happening uptown if only they experienced it. That man was one of the great graffiti artists of the early days of hip hop, Frederick Braithwaite, a.k.a. Fab Five Freddy. Yeah, Fab Five Freddy. <laughs> Art maker, beat maker, the maker with the flavor, the one who's so fly he brings everybody. <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> That's great. Oh, thank you, I thank didn't you. think you made that up. I thought that was like a thing. No, no. <laughs> it's a thing now. Uh, so, yes, the, he, actually, I forgot to mention Bridge Maker. Yeah, Bridge Maker. Absolutely. <laughs> Five, Fab Five Freddy or Fab. Fab. At, Fab. Uh, yeah, Fab at this time. He was a teenager living in Bedside, Brooklyn. Hey, remember Brooklyn? I remember. I lived in Bedside for <laughs> six years. Yes. So he was living in Bedside, Brooklyn. He was a good looking dude, outgoing, really smart, well spoken guy. And he's skipping school to go to the, you know, Metropolitan Museum of Art, Manhattan. He's checking out the greats, you know, the masters, Caravaggio, Duchamp, Boccioni, and Warhol. And as a young age, he's already tagging, you know, graffiti writing on walls and subway cars. Uh, he's checking out the local music scene in Brooklyn, too. He's going to block parties and watching Grandmaster Flowers. Pete DJ Jones, my boya, all the greats, the masters as well. Mm -hmm. And so these are the ones that inspired many of the uptown Bronx DJs like Grandmaster Flash. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't the first Grandmaster. He got Grandmastered from Grandmaster Flowers and watched Pete DJ Jones with the Q-Switch. You know, that's what a lot of people are saying. You know, so where did hip hop start? Don't ask me. <laughs> that's my answer. Don't ask me. Yeah. You know. Let's just say New York City. Five, five boroughs. <laughs> oh, you don't want to get started with Florida. Uh, Florida. Louisiana. Of course, yes. Yeah. And Louisiana. Yes. I, all right. I know. We're going to give everyone props, but yeah. right now, this is the, the importance of this is the locality. We're talking about the culture here. Yes, you know, exactly. and we're talking about where it reached when. Exactly. <laughs> so Fav, he's really immersed in everyone who was fly. Okay. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because as I said before, Fab is not shy. You know, he contacted Glenn O'Brien, who was writing a music column about all kinds of music like funk, reggae, new wave, punk. So Fab said, Hey, Glenn, you're an interesting guy, you know, former Warhol factory guy who who was the editor of Interview Magazine. That's pretty interesting. You know, could you come over so I can interview you on my college radio station? And so Fab and Glenn got to meet and then they got to talking about music and art and what's happening with the kids these days. <laughs> <laughs> and Fab is telling him, like, listen, I'm doing a lot of graffiti work. We paint on the trains and some people call it vandalism or disrespectful, but it's art. It's no different from what I see at the Met, like a Liechtenstein painting, you know, it, it may be hanging in a museum like this pop art, but the Dadaist, the Futurist, the Impressionist movement, you know, it's a lot like a, the art on the trains and murals on the public walls. Like The only difference is that this is new art, you know, and a new modern way to do it. Like when Fab painted the soup cans on the subway train as an homage to yeah. Andy Warhol to show that this is art, you know, just not the art that you expected. Yeah. It's art moving on a train going uptown to the Bronx down south to downtown Manhattan and back up again. And just like that, you have an incredible, diverse audience to witness this. It's great. Yeah. There's real integrity to this artwork that we're doing right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Google the, the Campbell Soup train. It's beautiful. I couldn't imagine seeing that running around New York City. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It's got all the different soups. It's got pop soup, Dada soup, futurist soup, bread soup, TV party soup, fabulous five soup. <laughs> and of course, I don't know why, it, just because tomato soup <laughs> <laughs> on the five train that he did with Lee Quinones. You know, yeah. I don't know, man. Just, uh, you want to do it on the four train or on the five train? Okay, so Glenn was sold. Glenn is like, you sold me. Yeah. I'm going to start this new TV show to showcase and talk about the subcultures that we're seeing here in New York. And beyond, of course. So come on and join this show. It's going to be called TV Party. And it's going to be a party all the time. We, we probably could use an extra set of hands. Uh, how are you with the camera, Fab? And he's like, <laughs> I guess I'm okay. So he he would come in all the time. And so TV Party, that's kind of how it started. A public access show to uh, showcase uh, all these subcultures. Like David Bowie was on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Chris Stein and uh, Debbie Harry. And uh, just an array of a bunch of, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, like artists and musicians and all kinds of people just coming together and just showing what they had. Yeah, and there are some clips of TV Party on YouTube. Not too many, but like a couple, a bunch of like 30 second clips. It's fucking weird. Yeah. (laughs) There's a good documentary on it on YouTube. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was just looking for like actual clips of TV Party and it's it's all in black and white. Uh, They've got, you know, they do call-ins. Everyone's so fucking mean on the call-ins. Awful. (laughs) It's a weird, weird fucking show, but it's, you know, it's old school New York City public access. It's great stuff. Now, concerning how Fab Five Freddy found his way into the punk scene, TV Party was co-hosted by Chris Stein. And Chris Stein was the co-founder of the most successful of the first wave New York punk bands, Blondie. Now, from Fab Five Freddy's appearances on TV Party, he became fast friends with Debbie Harry. And Debbie Harry was, of course, the lead singer of Blondie. And I don't care what the urban legends say, she was not almost killed by Ted Bundy in New York City in the mid-1970s. That didn't happen. Some other guy tried killing Debbie Harry. What? <laughs> I'll tell you the story. Like she got into a car with a the guy. There was a fucking, the front seat was missing on it. She barely got out. He looked kind of like Ted Bundy, but Ted Bundy wasn't in New York City. At that time, he was proven to be somewhere else. Um, someone should tell her to never get in a random car from the airport. That was the last time she did that. Oh, yeah. good. Very good. <laughs> but once Debbie and Fab got to know each other, she took him to punk venues like the Mud Club downtown to see bands like the Talking Heads. And at the same time, Fab was also seeing Grandmaster Flash uptown and collecting bootleg tapes of rap battles. But even though Fab was just 19, or maybe because he was 19, because honestly, he is the coolest kid in New York City at this point in time. There's got to be one, and at this time it's Fab Five Freddy. He saw the similarities between the punk and hip-hop scenes, and by accounts, 
Fab was the one guy who had both the charisma and the desire to bring those two worlds together. For long, though, Blondie had gone from being a local band playing CBGB to being one of the biggest groups in the world after, of course, the sudden smash success of their breakthrough single, Heart of Glass. But while Debbie Harry was back in New York taking a break from touring, Fab Five Freddy took her uptown to the Bronx to do a little cultural exchange. Wanting to make sure she saw the best show possible, Fab took Debbie Harry to see Grandmaster Flash do a DJ set. And so after Debbie saw Grandmaster Flash perform and was fucking blown away, according to Flash, she walked up to him and said, I'm going to write a song about you. And before they knew it. And what did Flash say? Cool. Okay. <laughs> we had to finish the conversation. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, blonde lady. <laughs> and before they knew it, both Grandmaster Flash and Fab Five Freddy were name-checked on Blondie's fourth and last number one hit, Rapture. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is fast, Flash is cool. Francois and Bob, Flash ain't no dude, and you don't stop. So yeah, so Fab, uh, you know, he's friends with Chris and Debbie and and he's hanging out like at, at their apartment in Midtown. And, and and so Debbie's like, oh, I have this song. This is a great song named Rapture. Do you want to listen to it? And Fab's like, yeah. And she plays him this song and he's like, oh, that's really fly. That's dope. That's really cool. And Debbie's like, oh, thank you so much. And then like cut to like a little bit later, mm-hmm. like a few months later. And uh, Fab is in Paris because he got to do a, a really cool European gallery show like for his graffiti artwork that he did with Lee Quinones. And so he's in Paris and he connects with uh, some other friends that he met also from like the downtown new wave scene. Uh, you know, Chris France and Tina Weymans from Talking Heads. So he's like, yo, Chris and Tina, let's go hang out. Let's go have some drinks or something. So they get in a cab in Paris and they're going down. They're, they're, they're passing the Trump and wand, you know, and all this <laughs> stuff. And all of a sudden on the radio, in the cab, the song Rapture comes on. And Fab's like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, this is the new Blondie song and Tina and Chris is like yeah I, this is the new Blondie song it's a big hit and then Fab's like that's me he, she, she just named it me like she's talking about Flash Flash is fast Flash is cool yeah that's my man Grandmaster Flash she's rapping about Flash man and then, uh, and then the guy about Mars and then there's a Cadillac and eating cars or something I heard the, the Subaru somewhere <laughs> 
Honestly, guys, I, I have no idea what she's talking about at this point, but this is still so cool. All of this is great. What a really nice thing. Thanks, Debbie. And that song went straight to number one, first number one rap song that hit the charts. Yeah, it really was. And Fab Five Freddy thought that it was a joke that she made specifically for him just to make him laugh. He didn't take it seriously at all. Well, that's what a lot of people were saying when the song came out and they're like, and also all the, you know, hip hop artists, uh, the emerging hip hop artists at this time, they're all, all saying like, that was cute. <laughs> and you know what? We applaud Debbie. That's great. She's she's great at showcasing lots of different styles and everything. But that was just cute. It was cute. <laughs> they certainly liked it more than Rapper's Delight. Yeah. And we'll get to the reasons why nobody in the rap scene liked Rapper's Delight next episode. Now, strangely enough, Debbie Harry wasn't the only connection between the first wave of New York punk scene and the hip-hop community uptown. Like we said, you know, Fab Five Freddy was hanging out with Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth. And Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth had a side project from the Talking Heads called Tom Tom Club. Yeah. Known best for this single right here. One of the best songs of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so good. fucking bass on that song yeah <laughs> yeah and of course all of this might go a little ways towards explaining the previously unexplainable funky man you had to bring it up <laughs> you had to bring it up i mean we were doing so well i can't help i have if we're gonna talk about hip-hop and punk coming together we gotta talk about dd ramon's rap single the miss or should i <laughs> or should i say D.D. King's Oh, right. That's single. right. That's right. <laughs> Please, don't mess that up. Of course, we discussed Funky Man at length uh, on our Ramon series. And not so coincidentally, Funky Man featured cover art by the same person who did the art for Tom Tom Club's first album. Well, remember D.D. Ramon asked a lot of his friends to help him out. Yeah. And some people had to answer that phone call. <laughs> In other words, a lot of people in the first wave of punk responded to the hip-hop scene uptown. And while some succeeded in joining in on the fun, women mostly, some, like Dee Dee, fell flat on their face. A long clock ringing, it's time to get up. It's time to do that funky strut. I'm a funky man, I got funky bones. I'm a funky man, my name is Dee Dee Ramon. Well, let me tell you about myself. I play the bass in a punk rock. Japan. And nothing 
God bless him. <laughs> Most of us will never forgive you. Just so you know. <laughs> it, it bothered me. It bothered me for so long. Like, how did this happen? And now, like, I feel like I've got the answer. Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> some people get in and out of styles. Uh, and, and that was the case. You know, to be fair, though, to be fair, that's what I sound like in the shower. <laughs> I just didn't record it <laughs> and release it and, and make a video about it <laughs> and then go up. on tour. It's a, <laughs> it's a really fun video. Uh, it's, you know, he's doing his best and it's got a positive message at the end. Drugs are bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, hey, it's Funky Man. Yeah. What are you going to say about Funky Man? And of course, you know, there's Funky Man on one side, there's Rapture on the other side. And then there were the punks that were somewhere in between. There were people in the UK that even tried this. Captain Sensible, co-founder of The Damned, which is, I would say, is our favorite British punk band. Yeah. Definitely mine. Captain Sensible tried out hip-hop in 1984 as a solo artist with his single, What? And he actually... <laughs> That's how it's spelled. <laughs> what? What. Yeah, W-O-T. And he actually did his homework because he used a variation on the Good Times bass line that was used by so many rappers in the early days. Well, I woke up this morning and I was feeling fine, but this cat starts banging, man, what a swine. So I called reception, but to no avail. That's why I'm telling you this sorry tale. It went bang, I said shut up. It went bang, I said wrap up. Well, I'm aware that the guy must do his work, but the poor driver man drove me berserk. He said, Captain, I said what? He said, Captain, I said what? I've been to the west, but the girls are like most other ones undressed. Well, hello, Adam, where you been? I said, stand aside, cause I'm a feeling mean. I had a gun full of you, and I'm a feeling bad. But you're an ugly old pirate, and ain't I glad? He said, Captain. I said, what? He said, Captain. I said, what? He said, Captain. I said, what? He said, Captain. I said, what you want? It's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> it's really not bad. The funny thing is that when you read the reviews of it at the time in the UK, no one recognized it as rap. Really? No one, they were all like, it's a great pop song. Like he's got really good pop sensibilities. <laughs> they had no they had no fucking clue at all. I, that's insane. The, the BAM and all them were going to Europe around that time. Yeah, I guess the people that were covering Captain Sensible hadn't seen BAM yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, in addition to being responsible for Debbie's rap in Rapture, and by the way, I just now got that fucking pun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, I feel stupid. Fab Five Freddy. He was also 
indirectly responsible for bringing hip-hop downtown to where the Beastie Boys would finally see it. Yes. So Fab was working with a filmmaker, Charlie Ahrens, to make a this low-budget movie about this new hip-hop culture, you know, art, music, and dance that later came out to be my favorite movie this week, <laughs> Wild Style. Yeah. And while working on that movie, Fab was going uptown to the Bronx all the time and connecting with the DJs and MCs there like Grandmaster Flash and Bambata. So he invited Bambata when he was up there to play downtown at Club 57, you know, the tiny church basement venue on St. Mark's Place. Uh, we've talked about that place a lot. Yeah. A lot of, you know, Dead Kennedys, Misfits, the, a lot of them played there and th around this time, yeah. too. I mean, it, it's just like another day. It's like Tuesday, Pembata, <laughs> Wednesday, Misfits. <laughs> well, okay, so that night was Keith Haring's Blacklight Art Exhibition Show. You know, Keith Haring being a famous artist who got his start painting on the subways and later becoming an international star before his unfortunate death. But right now he's on the rise. Keith Haring's on the rise and, and Bam was definitely on the rise, right? So his DJing was like a huge hit with the downtown crowd, uh, you know, for this exhibit, which opened so many opportunities for this like merging of different countercultures coming together, you know? So Fab's like, dude, that was great, Bam. You know, come back and bring back your Zulu Nation DJs with you and come back and play at the Jefferson Hotel and the Mud Club. You know, you're welcome all over this place. And in April of 1981, there was actually that one particular show and mud club show that fab said really brought hip-hop downtown and it was an art show he curated called beyond words mm -hmm. graffiti based rooted and inspired work you know so they had artists like jean michel basquiat keith herring lee quinones lady pink oh i love lady pink yeah alan vega and iggy pop yeah among others i mean they're bringing alan vega from suicide and is is yeah. like showing there you know yeah. iggy pop it's it, this iggy is pop just i rolled in <laughs> You Tomorrow's leaders, man. <laughs> Tomorrow's leaders. You got an extra wall for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do, Iggy. Yes, we do. Always, always, Iggy. But, the, you know, this is the punk and the hip hop worlds come together first through the art world. And this is fantastic. Like yes. the, the, this is where where it's all happening. You know, and as far as the music at the Beyond Word show went, you know, you had Africa Bombada. You know, the Jazzy Five are emceeing with them. You had the Fantastic Freaks. And you had a group that holds a place as one of the earliest legends of hip hop. One member of this group, Grandmaster Kaz, had been one of the guys who had gotten a mixer out of the 1977 blackout. And the group's name was the Cold Crush Brothers. Yes! Yeah, crew, you're the DJs, what you gonna do? do, 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 do. 
so good. Cone Crush Brothers. Is this why we have two drum machines? <laughs> I have a good feeling. It's partly why. Yes. Yeah, it's it's definitely partly why. Yeah, we'll we'll get into my my two drum machines next episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, yes, I'm well aware that Cold Crush Brothers do have a song called uh, Punk Rock Rap. Uh, it's not good, though. Yeah, we don't have to play. They had so yeah, many other better things. So many other better songs. So, And it's like punk rock rap is like, I don't even know what that song is. It's not really a rap song. But it's not really a rock song. And it's not really an electro. I don't know what the fuck that song is. But Perfect. <laughs> I want you to feel, Marcus, this is my art. We want you to feel confusion. Confusion. Yes. Straight confusion. Now, what was essentially going on here at this Beyond Words show, and this is how Jeff Chang put it in Can't Stop, Won't Stop, was that race and class segregation was out and cultural crossover was in, at least in the New York art scene. When it came to the regular punk on the street, though, hip-hop was proven to be a harder sell. And this was something the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five would find out much to their chagrin in 1981. So the Clash came to New York mm -hmm. uh, to play Bonds, a uh, string of dates. They oversold, so they had to add a bunch of extra dates. And so they asked all their favorite artists from New York to come and open for them because that's what The Clash always did. I think we talked about this many times, of mm -hmm. course. We talked about this when Suicide went on their European trip with The Clash. Yep. And what a disaster that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joe Summer, great taste in music, not so good at uh, choosing an opening act. Well, I mean, like he... It made sense. A yeah. lot of times it makes sense. Well, it makes sense in his brain. But that's the thing about Joe Strummer is that it makes sense like 10 years after he makes the decision. Like <laughs> it's a good it's a good decision and a bad decision all at the same time. He's choosing these groundbreakers. He's choosing these people that years later will be seen as absolute masters of, uh, you know, the, the early scenes. But he's choosing them. It's kind of like what we talked about with the Ramones. You know, people went and saw the Ramones and had no fucking clue what to think. Their minds broke. And so they just went, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times it's cool to like mix up like the genres. I, I think a lot of 70s shows did that, but sometimes it just doesn't work if, if you have a very uh, hardcore fandom yeah. at, at times, which the clash were in the middle of having. And I think that's what happened because, so, like, the, you know, they brought Grandmaster Flash to come on and open for them. Grandmaster Flash started his set, you know, his DJ set with his three turntables and the Furious Five, you know, showed up all dressed up in their fly leather suits. And they got up and they started rapping and dancing. They're playing their music. But the crowd wasn't into it at all. No. Like Flash tried to, like, stop, you know, the music for a second to get the Furious Five together and be like, all right, let's try to control this crowd because there was just nothing but a wave of, like, a tidal wave of booze yeah. and just yelling and like they never got control of the audience you know they were gobbed on remember gobbed on yeah, spitting remember. and they were gobbed on the beer cups were thrown on them you know like I, I mean like Joe Strummer had to get on the PA and yell at the audience for being idiots <laughs> and, and told them to cut the crap and give them a chance if you don't treat these guys with some respect then you don't deserve to see the clash <laughs> you know <laughs> it was really rough like and then the next night they decided to you know the Furious Five they decided like, okay we'll dress in our street clothes uh, instead of our fly outfits. Yeah, because look up fucking Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, how they dressed back then. They looked fucking awesome. They looked amazing. Yeah. They were so dressed, but, you know, they figured we'll dress it down. Okay, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll just keep it to the music. Okay, fine. And they bombed again. So Melly Mel tried to get him. You know, it's like, everyone say ho! And the audience goes back with, fuck you! <laughs> Melly Mel just 
everyone just they they literally got booed off stage. They had to walk away. And Melly Mel angrily just said, like, some of you, not all of you, but some of you are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I've read and been told that a large number of these assholes, these, you know, uncultured meatheads that were in the crowd, it wasn't all of them, but it was a, a big number of them, that they were, this is unfortunate, from New Jersey. <laughs> Listen, I'm not trying to start a war, okay? I love New Jersey. I love our neighbors to the south. The long state down. I love them very much. New Jersey is a great state full of wonderful church basements and, and, and diners. But apparently the fault was on the bridge and tunnel crowd as uh. opposed to the more arty scene that you'd see downtown. And that's, that's what they said. I, Steve Buscemi was there. Yeah. <laughs> he said, he's like, yeah, it was really unfortunate. Yeah, he was absolutely there. And, and I think what happened here is that it, it was, I think, um, you know, him saying they're stupid is not necessarily, it's close to the truth, but not really there. I think it's a lot of confusion because I think when Grandmaster Flash went on and, you know, and we'll talk, definitely talk about this later, um, um, is that I think a lot of people thought, and from what I've read, they thought that it was disco. And this was the fuck disco time. This was fuck you. We're, we're punks. We're going to start a riot. Disco sucks. Yeah. You know, this is the time of disco sucks. I do not subscribe to that. I fucking love disco. I adore disco. But at the time, yeah, people, because when well, Flash imagine is, you hear it every day, all day long. Yeah. You're going to go insane, you know? I get that. But, you know, Flash is playing his records and he's sampling Records that could be considered disco. It sounds a little disco. And people are just fucking confused. They're like, why am I coming to a punk show? Why am I hearing disco right now? And of course, some of them were just fucking stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Treacherous 3 were invited to open up. They didn't do that great. Maybe a little bit better. A little bit. You know, ESG, a little bit better. Well, they yes, play- I could see ESG doing a little bit, much better with a punk crowd. A, a little bit better. It, it, was, it was just a very tough crowd. Yeah. And so, but The Clash, you know, they were still like energized by what they saw and what and what they were listening to. I I know they got a lot of like, like, you know, bootleg tapes and everything that they would listen to all the time. And that inspired actually Joe Strummer. He actually actually wrote this song like in the studio, wrote the lyrics like w- right there while everyone was sitting and waiting for him at uh, the song Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Seen the ads, cause it's nice Better 
the price Never mind that, it's time for the bus We got to work, and you're one of us Folks go slow in a place of work Minutes drag and the hours to see the the video they did with this song um i think don let's uh did a lot of the camera work and everything for it it's really really cool just showing like b-boys and graffiti work and, and all that stuff it's really really cool yeah they have I mean, the clash they're just they're the clash man they know what they're doing <laughs> <laughs> but now it's time to bring in the beastie boys to this story oh wow <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not known if any of the Beastie Boys were at this Grandmaster Flash show in particular. Because we do know the Beastie Boys were all fans of The Clash. I'm sure they went to what because The Clash did what, 11 shows or 14 shows? It was a lot. It was a lot of shows because they wanted to honor every single ticket. But what we do know is that seeing Grandmaster Flash with The Clash was not their first introduction to hip hop. Nor was seeing hip hop live downtown their introduction to the genre. Instead, the Beastie Boys heard hip-hop through bootleg mixtapes that were either taped live at the shows or taped off of the late-night hip-hop radio shows that aired in the small hours of the morn. Oh, yes, WHBI. 105.9 <laughs> FM. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there were all of these hip-hop shows that were being played in New York City, but they were, like, from 2 to 4 a.m. You know, like, they were very late night, so, you know, people would tape them, and then they would sell these bootleg tapes all around uh, the end, and they just made it from, you know, uptown, downtown, just from kid to kid to kid to kid. And this is how a lot of kids kids in New York City heard hip-hop for the first time. And as far as Mike Diamond, a.k.a. Mike D went, of course, Mike D, the mid in the Beastie Boys, he first heard a tape his neighbor Raymond Rosado recorded off the radio. Most likely, that tape was this recorded battle rap in which Cool Modi of the Treacherous yeah. Three fucking destroyed Busy B. Starsky right. at Harlem World in 1981. You're not wrong. MC Supreme and I'm one of a kind. If you search real hard, I'm sure you'll find. Ain't another MC who can rhyme like this. Not your mother or your father, aunt, brother or your sister. Sit back and enjoy. Don't try to bite. Cause it's very hard to say any rhyme I write. But do it like this. Do it like that. Concentrate real hard and get the rhyme down pat. No matter how hard you try, you'll see. You'll get your mind in the mind. I can't say it like but you wanna be, busy wanna be, honey, know we wanna be another Kumo D. So let's all chant because you know you can't. Everybody salute to the new MC champ. It's like this, y'all. Like this, y'all. Like this, it's this. It's like this, y'all. Now that bar did the bar, the dang, the dang, dang. Sound pretty good, but it ain't no thing. I'm the super scooper party pooper member. Oh, super scooper disco breaker running. Man, I'll never make a second rap alone. I'm not a boy. Baddest man you ever saw. Money make an earthquake. A man who gets the party shake. You complicate stimulation. Man who's gonna rock the nation rock. He called Cool Modi, you know, it was a Christmas uh, rapper's convention. Yeah. And Cool is like, all right, I'll take the bait. And holy crap, it's history. It really is. Like, this is considered like a, a very historic battle rap and we're just so lucky that it was actually recorded on tape pisker does a wonderful job of illustrating this entire rap battle over like two or three pages it's really fucking cool now this rap battle was a turning point in hip-hop because while busy b was more of a party mc you know ba with the ba and all that that was busy b that did the ba with the ba first cool mo d was introducing a sharp-edged 
lyrical style that turned a corner for hip hop from parties and good times to real shit. Exactly. This is real shit. This is real rap. This is rhythm and poetry. Yeah. I mean, we're no longer toasting. We're no longer saying, hey, if you parked over here, can you please <laughs> move it? You're, you're, you're blocking the entrance. There's no more of that. Yeah. No, now, now it's really, really at the next level. Yeah, now it's saying something. In fact, that rap battle was so important to Mike D in particular that he referenced it years later in the Beastie Boys hit, Root Down. Yes. does a verse about like the cool mode busy b rap battle and how great it was and then mca follows it with a verse about how awesome he thinks his parents are yeah (laughs) he's the sensitive type yes you might be right it's simple but something you almost never hear in politics today with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Now, while Mike D was listening to bootleg battle rap tapes on the train, Adam Horowitz, a.k.a. Adrock, was getting turned on to hip-hop by his older brother. Or at least this is one version of the story that he tells. He's fast and loose. Yes. (laughs) I get a feeling he doesn't enjoy being interviewed very much. Well, you know, you're interrupting his snack time. (laughs) Sometimes he eats snacks. I respect the man who eats his snacks. (laughs) Well, the elder Horovitz got a hold of a 12-inch single from Jimmy Spicer called Adventures of Super Rhyme, which features long stretches of Jimmy rapping as, among other people, Dracula. Yes. I fucking love Adventures of Super Rhyme. Yes, I'm one of a kind. I'm Super Rhymes and I'd like to say hello. And since I'm on the mic and I'm ready to rock, this is how it goes. Yes, I rock so good. I rock so well. I'll ring ding dang a ding ding a dang, baby. I'll ring your bell. Yes, I'm Super Rhymes. I'm 22. I want to be 100 before I'm through because no, I didn't come from the planet Earth. Planet Rhyme on is my place of birth. From the day I came out my mother's womb, I found my in the operating room Then the doctor spanked me on my behind I didn't cry, the kid started to rhyme My mother said, son, that's the way it should be Your name is Super Rhymes, you'll be an MC So then my father put me on a meteorite Sent me to Earth to rock the mic I got to Earth and started laying it down That's the jam of the mic I 
sweet They found while I was at the jam Of this one time I rock into the beat Said I'm feeling fine Just a freaking out On the freaks behind I looked in the face Of Frankenstein I said Oh no She's not mine Because my woman is fine as wine And she goes by the name Of the lowest line But she didn't come here With me this time I'm feeling real sad But not that bad I'm I mean I, I do have to just Fade it down at any point Because that That single Is 10 minutes Of Jimmy Spicer just rapping he doesn't stop for 10 minutes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like and what yeah. we yeah what we just heard is like you know him's like yeah i'm superman and he's just like fuck just going like yeah i'm superman i was born and then he calls lois lane lois lined it's because it rhymes it, it rhymes <laughs> and that's that's <laughs> and it's also a hip-hop thing you know it's line you know lines of rap everything <laughs> you know all that type of stuff but yeah adventures of super rhyme is great and like in ad rock said like this was what opened up the world of hip hop for him. He said he heard it when he was 12. Uh, and he always thought that he was going to be he's like, yeah, I wanted to be like a baritone like Jimmy Spicer, but that didn't work. No, out. it's not. It's, it's not going to work for you. Ad-Rock. <laughs> You're right. He did study all the lyrics for it. Like he's like, this is the first song. That I'm, I learned every lyric to this. It's 10 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he was down for that. that. That's when I guess that's like kind of like the beginning of like, I know I'm into this because I want I'm emulating exactly what, you know, like Jimmy Spicer and all them treacherous three. Like this is what I'm into if I'm starting by emulating them at a very, very young age. Yeah. And when the Beastie Boys start doing hip hop uh, live, which will, you know, get into next episode like what ad rock was doing is like he would essentially cover adventures of super rhyme where he would just do a couple of verses from super rhyme just to do something just to do rap on stage (laughs) (laughs) but even though the beastie boys have been hearing all of this rap as a part of their regular musical repertoire they were still heavily ensconced in the hardcore scene when it came to the music they were making it wasn't until hip-hop came downtown that everything changed And for the Beastie Boys, the show that revealed their own potential was at the Rock Lounge, where the Beasties saw the Funky Four plus one more. That's one of my favorites. so good, yeah. (laughs) This is the way we rock the house. Sure enough, everybody gonna turn it out. Well, I'm kicking rock well, cause the rock's so swell. Every time you hear my name, it rings a bell. Well, I'm leading right to see, making history with all the fly girls yelling, take me. Well, I'm sorry, rock. Caesar, the reason why, cause I'm the women pleaser Well I'm Jazzy Jeff, with the most finesse Say I do it to the rhythm, till I do it the best Now we're the funky four And I'm the plus one more And this is the way we go back and forth With the five MC, y'all aren't too much When we rock the mind, so with the match we touch oh, We're on time, we're masterminds We hypnotize when we run down the rhyme Therefore fly guys, I'm the best female I'm telling the truth, not the fairy tale Now listen to the story that the five put down And it's guaranteed, so let the travel around Now we said it once and we said uh, the funky four plus one more. <laughs> Not a tragic story, but it's, it's definitely full of injustice. Yes, it is very much so. It's an infuriating so. story. Yeah, yeah. Which apparently we're not going to get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, essentially the Funky Four plus one more. You know, they were the first rap group to ever be on national television. Debbie yeah. Harry brought them on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And they, they were the first to get a record deal with Enjoy. Uh-huh. And they were supposed to go on tour with Blondie, you know, which would have 
I mean, that would have blown them up. It would have made them famous. And they're all teenagers. They're all very young. But by that time, they had signed with Sugar Hill Records and Sylvia Robinson. And we're going to get into her a little bit more on the next episode when we get into like, you know, hip hop on wax, you know, what recording hip hop was like. Uh, and Sylvia Robinson fucked him over and said no. She said no. I and, know. And that was, and then the Funky Four plus one more, you know, they just kind of faded. You know, they they eventually broke up. You yeah, know, Double Trouble, that, that you know, two of the guys from Funky Four plus one more were on, you know, the Wild Style movie and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they did break up. I mean, they even have a rap about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, super rap. And they also had the first female MC, like Shah Rock. Like, she's fucking amazing. Yeah. You listen to every single one of, uh, you know, the Funky Four plus one more tracks that are recorded, and there's not that many. Uh, and there's like, you see her, you know perform live it's it's great they're they're wonderful but they are they should have been the first big real hip-hop group you know and not manufactured you know they they should have been it um but they just weren't yeah yeah it's a shame but uh at least at this time at this time when they're playing at the rock lounge and the beastie boys are watching them they're like realizing like wow we're teenagers they're teenagers they're really good like they're in sync they they have it going on they they know what they're doing like we could do that yeah and i I think that was part of the the inspiration to like what was going to come next absolutely but what really gave the beasties a kick in the right direction when it came to live hip-hop was an East Village reggae club whose patrons were partly British expats who were wanting to get a bit of back home dub in New York City. That place was the Negril. Oh, the Negril on 2nd Avenue, downtown Manhattan. Well, it, it's not there anymore. It's kind of there. I think there's like a restaurant. Yeah, I'm sure the, the building is there. No, the Negril restaurant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I Googled the Negril and uh-huh. it was like closed. I'm like, what? Like, yeah. I, oh, it's a restaurant. Ah, I got it. I got it. But back then, I, I, it's about 1981, fall of 1981. This guy, Michael Holman, he opened up uh, the Negril in the fall of 1981 and hooked up with Rosa Blue or Cool Lady Blue to host these Thursday night hip-hop parties that would later be called the Wheel of Steel Nights. Yeah, and Ruza Blue, you know, aka Kool-A Blue, she was British. You know, she was part of the British punk scene. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. wasn't she a part of, like, Malcolm McLaren's crew? Yeah, I think she worked in the Soho boutique yeah. a little bit. That, yeah, she knew Malcolm. And I actually, it was when Malcolm... Uh, he put together Bow Wow mm-hmm. and he booked them and, and Ruza, <laughs> she went to go see them at the Roxy. She's like, wow, this is great. Yeah, I want to get in on this. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I want to promote these new parties and everything. That's why she hooked up with Michael Holman to, you know, be like, OK, let's do Thursday night parties and everything. And it was a really fun time. I mean, at first it was just like kind of half empty and then it just grew and got bigger and bigger until they had to shut down. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 in the beginning, though, in the beginning, this is where the Beastie Boys went. They went to the Negril and that's where they saw Bam and Jazzy J with the Rocksteady crew dancing. This is the first time the Beastie Boys see like an actual DJ in person take small parts of a bunch of little songs and mix them together. What we were talking about this whole time, you know, and making them into an entirely new song. Like a song that they made from other songs. But it's their song. Yeah. It's amazing. Like they saw real, what you call breakbeat DJing and and they never seen or heard anything like that before. That was amazing. They're like, wow, cutting records from Gary Newman to Aerosmith to Tony Basil... Hey, Mickey, you're so high, you're so high, you're so high, you know, all of that. And they're watching like DJ Jazzy J, you know, who came with Bam, he's like scratching the records, like, you're, you can do that? Yeah. You know, this is amazing. Like taking parts of these songs, repeating them, you know, going on a loop, you know, moving the two records back and forth. Like they're just studying yeah. at this point. They're in school, you yeah. know, and the Beastie Boys, they said, and this is a quote, this shit was so good and so well done. Our world changed forever. 
they're also hanging out like there's Don Letts right next to them. There's Billy <laughs> Idol walking by to the bathroom, you know, like and this is a place where uh, as it was uh, promoted, like Negril is had, you know, was a space for punks and Rastas and like minded seniors to meet on equal terms. Right. But the club, fortunately, as I said before, only lasted about a little less than a year because the fire department shut it down. It just got way too popular and way too crowded. So but anyway, at, at some point, uh, Cool Lady Blue left in the grill because she she kind of had a, a little beef with Michael Holman a, a little bit. So she left. She went to Danceteria and then the Roxy. Now, that's the Roxy, the famous Wheel of Steel Knights at the Roxy. That capacity of the Roxy was 20 times bigger than what the Negril had. It was huge. So Cool Lady Blue hung a sign at the rink because it was also rolling. <laughs> Did I forget to <laughs> yeah, mention the Roxy? Yeah, yeah, it's a fucking roller rink. <laughs> yes, it's a roller skating rink. <laughs> so she hung a sign at the rink that says, come in peace through music. And so that's where the, all the people would be coming in. The Beastie Boys would be coming in. People from all over downtown, people from uptown coming in to check this out. And and one of the major moments of one of these nights happening was when Cool Lady Blue decided to host a screening, the great rock and roll swindle movie, you know, the Sex Pistols movie. Mm -hmm. She hosted a screening at the Roxy. And so the film was screened like around 9 p.m. or something. And afterwards, you know, they were going to set up for their hip hop party. The punks and the new wave kids who stuck around for the movie and then just decided like, oh, let me just have a couple drinks afterwards. We're hanging out while the people from uptown were coming down to the party, to the club night party, of course. And Fab was there in the middle watching, you know, the punks on one side and the people from uptown on the other side coming down and thinking, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> These scenes are coming together, but yeah. this time not on purpose. This time it's not like an art exhibit that people go specifically to. Now it's coming together on a random night. This in, is a completely organic. Yeah. Yes. And the uptown and downtown people look at each other for a second and then they start dancing and partying together and probably sharing drugs and who <laughs> knows. And that was it. Finally, like different worlds, but like-minded individuals coming together, bridged by music and art and just having a great time. And there you have it, like a real legitimate mixed scene, you know, punk kids with torn stained Shirts watching B-Boys clean their white sneakers with toothbrushes in the bathroom. <laughs> that kind of shit. <laughs> Cultural exchange. And yeah. that's where it just popped for Fab. It's like the, the huge light bulb like burst. He's like, this is it. It's finally here. All this work. We finally made it. Yeah. And of course, the result, the biggest result, the fucking worldwide result of that was the fucking Beastie Boys. Yes. Now, at this point in time, early 1982, the Beastie Boys were still deep in the hardcore scene, and Mike D fully admits that seeing Minor Threat at the CBGB hardcore matinee was just as important to their development as live hip-hop was. But after seeing Bombada at the Negril and going to all these fucking shows at the Roxy, they found that hardcore punk just couldn't compete. In Mike Diamond's words, hardcore is about limits. It's about shorter, simpler, more speed, more volume. But in hip-hop, the possibilities were limitless. Also, you know, from what it seems, the hardcore scene that was solidifying itself in New York in the early to mid-80s, it just didn't seem like a lot of fun. The humor was kind of escaping slowly <laughs> out the windows at this time. Yeah, the humor, the fun, you know, it was it, hardcore. 
takes itself very seriously. And it, it, this is a thing that just kind of happens a lot. Uh, I, I remember when I was invited to a fun intramural dodgeball, you know, <laughs> event, you know, one of those for adults where you go yeah. to the bar afterwards and uh -huh. everything. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like dodgeball, like when I was a kid and everything, you know, but we're adults now. And then I went to this basement place in the, this church to you know, do this thing. You give five dollars, and man, it's brutal. <laughs> man, people were just, you know, yelling at me like you fucking idiot, you know, and things like that. And I'm holding the ball, and I was like all bruised up uh -huh. everywhere. And there's like three or four guys that are just yelling and just looking at everyone down. Jesus. And then we just all just go to the bar afterwards, <laughs> and everyone's like, "That was fun, right? Yeah, that was a good time. That was cool. it's like, why, why do we take things so seriously? It's fucking dodgeball." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, the people that were starting to rule the hardcore scene, they just didn't seem particularly fun to be around. <laughs> like, they really, like, they were taking shit really seriously. Everything was getting codified. Everything was becoming so fucking rigid. And so, and what are you going to do? Are you going to go to a hardcore show where you're just going to get the shit beat out of you as a matter of course? Because that's just what people are doing. Or are you going to go fucking hang out at Danceteria with Madonna? Ah, well, it's <laughs> a hard one, actually. Like, what's, what's your fucking choice going to be at yeah. this point? Yeah, I, I mean, I know we're generalizing a lot because we there's are. a lot of really great hardcore that is very creative and, and very poetic, of course. And But uh, but I guess what it seemed to the Beastie Boys at that time was just like, we need to distance ourselves away. And, oh, look, there's Madonna. <laughs> She's pretty. <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I'm down with that. I'm down with it, too. But from what Mike Diamond said concerning the Beastie Boys, hardcore had served its purpose. By 1982, all the Beastie Boys wanted to be was their own version of the Treacherous Three. We got something new, we got something new. Well, if you're rated like you're aided, like Book. the movie reviews. You see, we get five stars for each of us. So let us tell you the deal, because it is a must. Well, I'm the number oh. one eight. Oh. Oh. Face in the face, oh. 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 and I'm the number one dude. Oh. 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 What the never thought I'd listen to all of Mariah Carey's songs <laughs> in one episode, but hey, there they are. Hey, that's, of course, you know, Body Rock, that was Honey, you yeah, know, uh, fan yeah, her, Fantasy, that's Genius of Love. Her producer sampled a lot from all the greats. I mean, that's always been the thing. That's always been the thing, yeah. but that's, you know. And the songs are great, too. Yeah, the, I, I mean, the songs are so not, fucking good. 1990s Mariah Carey is just, yeah, it's I'm, it's I'm, solid, man. We can yeah. all we can uh, you it's can. A jam. Yeah. I officially give everyone permission to stop pretending to like fantasy. Ironically, like just it's a great fucking song. Yeah, <laughs> like just fucking go for it, man. Fantasy is a fucking jam. It's a triumph. <laughs> <laughs> really is. And by the way, that song by the Treacherous Three, of course, that featured Cool Mo D, who destroyed Busy B 
in the battle rap competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Body Rock. Uh, it's th- That's one of my favorite old school hip hop songs. I'm not being controversial by saying Body Rock's great. It's a fucking amazing song. Yeah. And that right there is where we're going to end episode two. We're going to be coming back with episode three uh, with, you know, Buffalo Gals, Cookie Puss, all yes, kinds of great all stuff. All the Beastie Boys, Rick Rubin. Uh, we're going to get into all the LL Cool J, all that stuff, all the stuff that comes next. It was just so important for us to get this down. It was so, I mean, not even for you, the audience, it's also for us yeah. to get it down in our heads. Yeah. We need to, to know all this. Yeah. It's I important. Mean, that's the thing about this, this story, you know, all the pieces matter. Yeah. It all adds up. Like the Beastie Boys, you know, that's what we talked about in the first episode. You know, we talked about that they are a, a, a cultural force unto themselves. This is how that gets created. Like you don't get to that point without a lot of different ingredients and a lot like this shit isn't simple. Yes. You know, and you it's got a <laughs> stew going. Yes. It's my favorite yeah. stew recipe. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, thank you all very much for listening. Of course, like I said earlier, there's a every single No Dogs in Space episode comes with a uh, playlist over on Spotify. Uh, you can find it by searching my name, Marcus Parks, or just searching No Dogs in Space and the band name and all the playlist comes up you know where we've got plays for every single episode for season one if you're new to no dogs in space you can go back and listen to any of our series from season one you can pick and choose you can start from the beginning if you like but if you just want to hear about joy division man you can just fucking listen to joy division uh they, have at it have at it man have at it but i would recommend starting from the stooges get a fucking scope of that shit <laughs> uh yeah so um that yeah follow us on instagram yeah, No Dogs Pod. And uh, and also, we have a new t-shirt that's coming up pretty soon. Very soon. We're going to... We're, we're, this is a pre, pre-announcement. pre <laughs> But we do have already a t-shirt. We do have a t-shirt for sale over at lastpodcastmerch.com. Uh, it's a great fucking t-shirt. It's our logo, but it's like, it's fucking... It's really made for a t-shirt. It's uh, made by uh, underscore YYYYS underscore... Matt Wise, wonderful fucking artist. Yes. Uh, but we do have a new one coming up soon. And um, we'll let you know when uh, that one's out. That one's fucking great as well. Cool. And of course, every single week here on No Dogs in Space, we like to play a song from the listeners because we have so many talented musicians that listen yes. to this show. We fucking love your music. We love what you're doing. Our band this week is Soft on Crime from Dublin, Ireland. Yeah, they're really, really great. And um, just in case, if anyone wants to submit their stuff, uh, please do. You, you know, you could be a band or just a singer or just a solo musician. You could be anything. You could just be a guy or a girl yeah. or, or anything in between. Yeah. It doesn't matter. As you make some noise, then please send it to us, uh, nodogsinspace at gmail.com and we'd love to listen to it and uh, potentially play it on the show. At Absolutely. The end, end of every episode. And we're getting through all the emails. We get a lot of submissions from bands. You guys are fucking great. It's, it's yeah. very difficult to choose every week. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. We got a long list going. Yeah, still, we, yeah, still, still it gets do. longer and longer. Still do. But if you dig this song by Soft on Crime, you can find them at softoncrime.bandcamp.com. Uh, this is their song. You've already made up your mind. If you dig the 70s stuff, you're going to fucking love this. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll be back in two weeks with part three uh, of the Beastie Boys. And we thank you very much for listening, as always. Bye. Bye.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.